grain will continue flowing through the Black Sea. The Black Sea Grain Corridor Agreement is agreed to be extended for two months. Plus, American congressmen coming to terms with the debt ceiling and how it might affect Ukraine. There could be a risk to any discretionary spending as it relates to cutting spending in the United States of America. And later in the program, King Lear. It's not just for class anymore. Today is Wednesday, May 17th. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening, I'm Steve Karish in Washington. Russia has agreed to extend a deal that has allowed Ukraine to ship grain through the Black Sea to parts of the world struggling with hunger. This according to Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. The duration of the latest extension was about to end. With the efforts of our country and the support of our Russian and Ukrainian friends, the Black Sea Grain Corridor Agreement is agreed to be extended for two months. The announcement came late Wednesday. It's a boost to global food security after Russia's invasion of Ukraine more than a year ago drove up food prices the world over. The renewal also has been confirmed by Ukraine's infrastructure minister and Russia's foreign ministry. The breakthrough accord brokered by the U.N. and Turkey last summer between the warring sides came with a separate agreement to facilitate shipments of Russian food and fertilizer that Moscow insists hasn't been applied. In turn, Russia set a deadline of this Thursday for its concerns to be ironed out or threatened to nullify the agreement. Such brinksmanship isn't new. With a similar extension in the balance in March, Russia unilaterally decided to renew the deal for just 60 days instead of the 120 days outlined in the agreement. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres praised the deal. Good afternoon. We have some positive and significant developments. The confirmation by the Russian Federation to continue its participation in the Black Sea Initiative for another 60 days. I welcome this decision. The continuation is good news for the world. Outstanding issues remain, but representatives of Russia, Ukraine, Turkey, and the United Nations will keep discussing them. I hope we will reach a comprehensive agreement to improve, expand, and extend the initiative as I proposed in a recent letter to the presidents of the three countries. And I want to convey my appreciation to all those taking part in the negotiations in a spirit of constructive engagement. I once again express my gratitude to President Erdogan and the government of Turkey for their efforts working in permanent coordination with the United Nations. The importance of the Black Sea Initiative and the parallel memorandum of understanding between the UN and the Russian Federation is clear. These agreements matter for global food security. Ukrainian and Russian products feed the world. Under the Black Sea Initiative, more than 10 million tons of food have been exported. Vital food supplies are reaching some of the world's most vulnerable people and places, including 30,000 tons of wheat that just left Ukraine 
aboard the WFP chartered ship to feed hungry people in Sudan. They matter because we are still in the throes of a record-breaking cost-of-living crisis. Over the last year, markets have stabilized, volatility has been reduced, and we have seen global food prices fall by 20%. And they matter because they demonstrate that even in the darkest hours, there is always a beacon of hope and an opportunity to find solutions that benefit everyone. Looking ahead, we hope that exports of food and fertilizers, including ammonia, from the Russian Federation and Ukraine, will be able to reach global supply chains safely and predictably, as foreseen in both the Black Sea Initiative and the Memorandum of Understanding on Russian Food and Fertilizer Exports, the implementation of which the United Nations is fully committed to support. Thank you. It's worth noting here that Guterres misspoke when he said that 10 million tons of food had been exported. The actual number is 30 million tons. Extending the Black Sea Grain Initiative is a win for countries in Africa, the Middle East, and parts of Asia that rely on Ukrainian wheat, barley, vegetable oil, and other affordable food products, especially as drought takes a toll. And now some more context and depth to a story that was developing as we were producing Tuesday's show. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa announced that Russian President Vladimir Putin and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky have agreed to meet a group of African leaders to discuss a potential peace plan for the conflict. Reuters' Rachel Faber has more. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa said on Tuesday that Russia and Ukraine have agreed to meet with a group of African leaders to discuss a potential peace plan for the conflict. The two leaders that I had occasion to speak to, that is President Putin and President Zelensky, agreed that they would be willing to receive the mission of the African heads of state in both Moscow and Kyiv. Details of the plan have not been publicly divulged, but Ukraine's stated position for any peace deal is that all Russian troops withdraw from its territory. The plan is backed by the leaders of Senegal, Uganda, Egypt, the Republic of Congo, and Zambia. My discussions with the two leaders demonstrated that they are both ready to receive African leaders and to have a discussion on how this conflict can be brought to an end. Whether that will succeed or not is going to depend on the discussions that will be held. Ramaphosa said the United States and Britain had expressed cautious support for the plan and that the UN Secretary General had also been briefed. South Africa is considered one of Moscow's closest allies on the continent, but says it is impartial and has abstained from voting on UN resolutions regarding the war. Last week, it rejected claims that weapons were loaded onto a Russian vessel from a naval base in Cape Town in December. That's Reuters' Rachel Faber reporting. Monday night in Ukraine saw massive, intense missile and drone attacks on Kyiv. However, these strikes were largely thwarted by Western anti-missile defense systems like the Patriot. 
Monday also saw negotiations between President Joe Biden and congressional Republicans on raising the country's debt ceiling and how the U.S. budget is allocated. Katerina Lisanova is a reporter with VOA's Ukrainian Service. She visited the House of Representatives Committee on Foreign Affairs on Tuesday to see how its members are reacting to the talks. First, she met with Democrat Ted Liu of California. Yesterday, Russia launched um, another attack on Kyiv, but uh, Ukrainian army been able to push it back uh, because of uh, air defense systems provided by allies in the United States in particular. What a signal it gives to allies to the United States regarding providing Ukraine with longer-range missiles, which Ukrainian army keep on asking. Uh, I continue to advocate providing the Ukrainian military with longer-range weapons, with additional air assets. I myself serve on active duty in the United States Air Force, and it's very clear to me that in modern warfare, air power is critical and can even be decisive. So I urge all the NATO countries to continue to provide longer-range weapons and more air assets to the Ukrainian military. And another question for a lot of conversations right now about uh, raising the national debt uh, ceiling, and uh, uh, there are also conversations about uh, cutting spendings. Is there any chance there is a risk that uh, Ukrainian aid, aid to Ukraine could fall under this cutting of spendings? I certainly hope not, and raising the debt is this strange thing in the United States where it's actually about paying the bills we already incurred. So we actually just have to pay the bills we already incurred. About future spending, that's something that Democrats are happy to have a conversation about, but we can't have a Republican-led default. And the United States Constitution says the full faith and credit of the United States uh, existence should not be challenged. So we just have to pay our bills, and hopefully uh, the Republicans will see the light and not default. Katerina also caught up with Republican Representative Brian Mast of Florida. What is the message that uh, gives the fact that Ukraine was able finally to back down Russian attack uh, with air defense systems for, for, you know, provided by the United States? Right now, there are hesitation uh, about providing that. So, is there personal, look, personally, I don't like any hesitation. If I'm in a fight, when somebody's attacking my home, why am I not going to attack their home? So I hate the way that this is being conducted in general, where there's limitations on weapon systems being able to deploy into sovereign Russian territory. To me, it makes no sense whatsoever. Tactically, um, if you want to speak tactically, make more fronts for the Russians to fight on. That's my opinion. So, you know, I want to see them uh, be able to hit as hard as they can. That's the way you want to fight. Thank you. And another question for a lot of researchers about uh, raising uh, the debt, national debt limit. Uh, and one of the part of our conversation is to cut in spending. Is there any risk that aid to Ukraine might fall under this cutting spending? There could be a risk to any discretionary spending as it relates to cutting spending in the United States of America. When you look at the, the debt deficit that we have, uh, it's something that has to be addressed because we can't conduct foreign policy in the way that we need to under the shadow of debt and deficit. So it's something that has to be addressed. Do you think Ukrainian aid could be a part of cutting? Any discretionary spending could be a part of it. VOA's Katerina Lisunova speaking with Representative Ted Liu of California and then Representative Brian Mast of Florida. 
Russia claims to have damaged a Patriot missile battery in Kyiv during Monday night's attacks. And while some Western media outlets are reporting the same thing, there seems to be no consensus on how bad the damage might be. For more, I spoke with Anna Chernikova in Kyiv. Of course, we cannot get any confirmations or any official reaction at this point. Uh, and we cannot verify this uh, independently. But what we know for the moment, at least this is what is discussed, that reportedly uh, there are certain damages of the system. It looks like that the damages are not that bad, uh, that the system will need to be moved from Ukraine. So it should be able to uh, fix uh, everything on the temperature of Ukraine. The only official comment I have from Ukrainian officials uh, is a comment from the a spokesperson of the Ukrainian Air Force. And he said, uh, so he, he did not, of course, provide uh, provide uh, any details. Uh, yesterday, he said that uh, there is no comments on that. But later on, he said that no one should no no one should worry about the destiny of Patriot. It's uh, it's very complex and modern system that uh, will definitely not be threatened by a Kinjal missile. This is what uh, was his comment on on that. And Anna, speaking of missiles, I understand Mykolaiv was targeted uh, overnight. Can you tell us the latest from there, please? Uh, yes, um, it was uh, another massive air raid alarm yesterday after uh, quite a terrible night for Kyiv. And um, this time, the main target was the city of Mykolaiv and Mykolaiv region. What we know for the moment that it was an att- a missile attack uh, reportedly for the moment. It might be caliber missiles, but again, we don't have official confirmation uh, still. But definitely missile attack, not drone attack. For the moment, we know that th- there were hits also reported. Uh, and the heats are in the infrastructure industrial areas. Uh, we know about one injured person. This is what was confirmed. Uh, in addition, uh, Mykolaiv region was also under attack, but no casualties or injured were reported. Now, do we know why Mykolaiv was targeted? Is there a, a strategic reason for it? Um, well, Mykolaiv was and remains quite a strategic uh, place, quite a strategic uh, city. Uh, it is located very close to Kherson, and uh, Mykolaiv is a city that stopped Russian forces from uh, advancing to Odessa. And um, while uh, the most part of Kherson region was under Russian control, Mykolaiv was under constant attack. And uh, Russian forces, uh, they were trying to, to get into Mykolaiv uh, in order to proceed and advance uh, farther to Odessa. Anna Chernikova in Kiev. Anna, as always, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Steve. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Steve Karish. In April of 2022, a Russian rocket hit a train station in the eastern Ukraine city of Kramatorsk, killing dozens and wounding more than 100 people. What became clear at the time was that local hospitals were not set up to handle a massive influx of wartime casualties. That's changing thanks to a unique medical project. Anna Kostachenko has the story, narrated for us today by Steve Barragona. 
April 8, 2022. Hundreds of Ukrainians are trying to evacuate from the Kramatorsk train station. At 10.38 a.m., a Russian ballistic missile with cluster ammunition hit the station. 61 people, including seven children, died that day. 126 were wounded. Oleksiy Yakovlenko, director of a local hospital, says it was the toughest experience in his decades-long career. They brought the wounded with their belongings. Some of the people died. Their stuff sat here for another week or two, reminding us of them. In the aftermath, it was clear local urban hospitals were not prepared for a wartime mass casualty event. So a Ukrainian think tank called Revival Institute for the Future started Project 22, a plan to teach clinics how to admit and stabilize dozens of patients at the same time. We are building a new infrastructure, a system together metrics monitor hospitals. We are educating new personnel. To bring Project 22 to life, Ukrainians needed help, which came from a Washington-based Ukrainian-American charity called United Help Ukraine. Each participating hospital receives the so-called life vest kit, with enough equipment, supplies, tools, and medication to admit 100 wounded people and treat them for five days. Each kit costs about $50,000. We figured that each clinic should have enough supplies for 100 people, 100 wounded, uh, enough to receive them, triage them, stabilize them until they're evacuated or discharged. The Syrian-American Medical Society whose doctors have experience admitting and treating mass casualties in Syria, also offered to share knowledge with its Ukrainian colleagues. You know, attacks on medical care, losing staff, it's all too familiar, and we just said we are going to help no matter what. Training is funded by a Ukrainian-American charity and conducted by Syrian-American doctors, and some hospitals are already implementing changes. One hospital, for instance, had decided to uh, change uh, kind of structurally the area where they receive mass number of injured people. Another hospital had changed its emergency room uh, based on some of the training. Today, Project 22 supplies five hospitals in different cities near the front lines. Founders are working to expand the program to 22 hospitals throughout Ukraine. For Anna Kostutschenko in the Donetsk region of Ukraine, Steve Baragona, VOA News. Russia's crackdown on internal dissent is nothing new. We've discussed it on the show several times before. This time, the Kremlin is going after a well-known filmmaker and theater director. The AP's Charles Della Desma has the story. A Moscow court has ordered the arrests of prominent filmmaker Alexander Rodnyansky and theater director Ivan Vyrypayev for spreading false information about the Russian army. The initial court hearings against Rodnyansky and Vyrypayev were held on April 27, but not reported by the court until this week. According to the court's press service, the two men who are outside Russia will be placed in custody once Russian authorities manage to detain them or get them extradited. Keith-born Rodnyansky left Russia after the start of the country's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 2022 and has repeatedly spoken openly against the war. In October 2022, Russia's Justice Ministry declared Rodnyansky a foreign agent. 
I'm Charles de Ledesma. From a theater director being persecuted in Russia to one helping his community in Ukraine. Thousands fleeing the war found refuge in the small town of Uzhgorod, Ukraine. A local theater director decided to stage the classic Shakespearean play King Lear to help refugees find some normalcy during the war. They were surprised by what happened next. Angelina Bagdasarian has the story, narrated for us today by Anna Rice. Ukraine, March 2022. Ushgorod train station. One after another, trains with evacuees roll in. Train Poltava Ushgorod is arriving to track number three. Train Kharkov Ushgorod is arriving to track number two. Economist Nikita Markovsky also arrived in Ushgorod on one of the trains. I was born in Crimea, and when Russia annexed it, I moved to Kyiv, and then it started again. Kyiv was being shelled, so I moved to Ushgorod. Why there? Because it's the safest place in Ukraine. Local theater director Vyacheslav Yegorov worked at a shelter in Ushgorod and decided on another way to help the incoming refugees. He decided to stage Shakespeare's King Lear and picked all the actors from among the displaced Ukrainians. The play was such a giant success that Ukrainian cinematographers made a documentary about it. And what's more, for Markovsky and his fellow amateur actors, salespeople, students and engineers, being involved in a theater performance became a sort of therapy, says Polina Herman. She is the producer of the documentary King Lear, How We Searched for Love in Wartime. Theater helped them heal, helped them get through the trauma, because, of course, it was a shock for everyone. Many lost their homes in Bucha and Mariupol. They had nothing left. They lived in a shelter, having lost their home, their job, not knowing what to do. And then suddenly they stumble upon the theater and find something new, find a place for themselves. I'm an English teacher by training. I taught at Lyceum No. 3 in Irpin. Ukrainian director Dmitro Hryshko's documentary made its debut at the Southeast European Film Festival in Los Angeles, California. We had this year 57 films in, uh, you know, uh, 56 in competition, because this is an international film uh, competition festival, and we cover 20 countries, so from Ukraine in the northeast, including uh, Georgia, Armenia, and all of the, the greater Balkan area. In addition to the documentary's reception, the play was so successful, the actors went on a tour across Ukraine. We organized a tour throughout Ukraine, they got to go to Kyiv, and that made the actors so happy. They feel inspired, aren't really healed, and this is what our documentary is about. We want to show what it means to Ukrainians that, despite all the hardships, we don't give up. After King Lear's success, the Ushgorod Theater has already started working on other plays. For Angelina Bogdasaran in Los Angeles, California. And that'll do it for us today. Stay up to date with continuing coverage on Ukraine and news from around the world 24 hours a day. Visit us online at voanews.com and on social media. Be sure to follow VOA News. 
On behalf of the entire Flashpoint Ukraine team, thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Karish. Washington, bam, 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 zip, D.C.